0: Welcome to FIA Market Voice. I'm Jamila Pirachi, Managing Director at Potomac Global Partners, and I'm also pleased to be a member of FIA's Board of Directors. As a part of FIA's Diversity and Inclusion Initiative, I'm going to be discussing a practical approach to inclusive recruitment that can be put into practice regardless of your industry or sector. I'm really delighted today to be joined by Dr. Mara Antonoff. She's an Associate Professor of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Antonoff and I have sons who play sports together, and we met over lunch just socially with another mom on the team. And of course, when I met her, I had no idea about her amazing professional accomplishments and certainly had no idea how much I would learn from her that day about a really straightforward approach to something we all are trying to enhance, which is diversity and inclusion. I think this discussion of diversity and inclusion often involves ourselves getting lulled into a false sense of security and success because we keep claiming numerical targets and we keep using acronyms and new letters, but we would never really change our processes and approach. And that's why we keep talking about this issue over generations now. What I learned from Dr. Antonoff was how transparency and simply a shared sense of purpose in recruitment can improve results and actually make them stick. So Mara, I'm really grateful for your joining me today, and it would be great to just tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Um, I was so impressed to meet you, and it's, I'm just so grateful to have you as a friend and as a fellow professional here in Houston. So please let us know who you are.
1: Absolutely, well, thank you so much for having me today. It it means a lot to me, and I'm very excited to be able to talk about some of these commonalities in in our very different careers, recognizing that there there are really some themes that resonate for for us both. Um, As you mentioned, I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon. I work at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, where I primarily take care of patients with uh, lung and esophageal cancer, but really any other malignancies within the chest and my role as a surgeon is to remove those malignancies. I'm also a mother of four. Um, as you mentioned, our, uh, our sons play sports together and um, I have three other children as well. Um, I feel very fortunate to be able to engage in a career that challenges me um, intellectually and technically and in every other way, it allows me to really make an impact on, on the lives of patients and their families and I think allows me to set an example for my children about uh, what, it, what it means to give of yourself to help others. But I think where you and I connected is the fact that even when we're doing something that we love, something about which we feel incredibly passionate, there really can be challenges in our workforces. And, and while I feel very, very privileged and honored to be able to do the work that I do, I know that my experience hasn't necessarily been the same that it might be for other people who, who work in the same, same field as me. And that I'd love to be able to tell you a little bit more about that. Um, In terms of my specific field, cardiothoracic surgery, um, it's it's a little bit different than medicine overall. We do know that the face of the physician workforce has really changed a lot over the last several decades. Um, The first female medical student in the U.S. graduated over 170 years ago, and women now comprise about half of all medical school matriculates. So that's been really good for women in medicine. Um, Unfortunately, inclusion of African-Americans and other underrepresented minorities. Into the medical profession has actually been quite a bit slower, and we see really markedly disproportionate gaps in representation in surgical specialties. With this being particularly extreme in the specialty in which I practice, cardiothoracic surgery, we've lagged way behind other fields in terms of our shifts toward a diverse workforce. And that's something that's really concerning to me, and something that I've put a lot of effort into trying to change. Um, you know, it's it's long been noted that women and minorities do have um, a tendency to suffer poor health outcomes, in, in part due to implicit as well as explicit biases, but also due to the fact that um, symptoms and pathophysiology among certain groups are really inadequately studied by the medical medical community. And it's actually a bigger issue that appropriate access to care remains a pressing concern. And more than anything, it's critical that patients have access to providers who really represent their local community and that they can personally connect with their doctors in order to have effective physician-patient relationships. both a medical and psychosocial standpoint and that's the impact on the patients but for me as someone who is really an educator and i look toward um really trying to broaden things for the diversity of our future workforce and the people who are going to be taking care of me and my family i think it's really important for us to understand that representation is not purely a patient-centered concern when we think about our trainees including medical students and residents it's often said you can't be what you can't see i'm not sure if that phrases used in your field, but we hear it a lot. And visibility and accessibility are really central to that tenant. And for us, a diverse surgical workforce can help provide mentors and role models to women and minorities who who may otherwise lack these important figures really in in their professional development. And so this is something that has become a really important part of my career. Um, In addition to taking care of cancer patients, I, I really care about facilitating the bringing of increased numbers of young and talented trainees from distinct backgrounds and experiences to cardiothoracic surgeries that we really can take, take better care of patients and um, really have, have a better future in our field. And just to give you a little bit of a, a status of where we're at right now, um, we know that uh, about 4% of um, diplomats from the American Board of Thoracic Surgery who've ever received certification in uh, the United States and Canada for, uh, for the practice of cardiothoracic surgery, about uh, 4% have been women and 7% of our currently practicing cardiothoracic surgical workforce in this country include women. And um, while we've included them, they aren't necessarily having the same rise in their careers. And I know that there's much more we can talk about that and that you wanted to discuss, but just a little bit of a background in terms of what I do and and why I'm so passionate about all of this.
0: That's extremely helpful, Mara. Um, When we first met, we were talking about basically just the challenges of rising in our careers and what we've seen change over the years. And so it's been really helpful to hear that again. And I'm sure people who are listening can, that, that resonates with them, some of the positive improvements over the years, as well as some of the things we're still working on. And I'll say right now, it's um, super impressive. And all of us listening to you should step back and make sure that we're in our respective fields, doing what we can to keep move, things moving forward. I feel like if a person saving people's lives through the the surgery can manage to find time to think about the future of the world, then we all can. Um, what has been your role in recruiting others to your field? You know, when we talked, one of the things that really stood out was all the nuts and bolts that you have really helped to put together in your own uh, practice to improve um, the way recruitment works just on a practical level. So maybe maybe you can break down for us a little bit about what recruitment looks like from application to uh, candidacy acceptance traditionally. And then, then we can talk a little bit about how you started getting involved in recruitment and what you've helped to change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, for those who aren't familiar with it, um, the matriculation into a fellowship training program um, is similar in some ways, but different from normal job application recruitment processes. And so for individuals who want to come train in our program to be cardiothoracic surgeons at at our institution, they have um, already completed an undergraduate degree, uh, have gotten a doctorate, a medical degree, and most have completed anywhere between five to eight years of general surgery training in which they're um, working in hospitals. And then when they're applying to our cardiothoracic surgical fellowship, they complete an online form that really gets sent to all the programs to which they're applying. And then we receive these uh, standardized applications, which consist of um, really a a lot of question and answer and their resume, but also uh, letters of recommendation, which we could probably have a whole other discussion about letters of recommendation and some of the inherent bias and challenges that we see in our interpretation of those letters of recommendation. But regardless, we get this whole packet, we review the packets, and then we make a decision about who we want to interview. Um, traditionally those interviews have involved those intervie- individuals having to come travel to meet with us in person, which again we see elements of inherent bias and, and, and challenges because getting the time away and the travel is not as easy for everyone um, depending on uh, finances and family situation and a variety of other obligations people may have. Um, in the current era, We have done some uh zoom related interviews just because of of the pandemic and i don't know if that's here to stay or if that's going to be um a hybrid in the future but ultimately after the interview process what there's a a match process and it's a mutual match process so if anyone has ever been involved in like a sorority or fraternity it's kind of the same idea where each party submits a rank list so for us our institution will submit a rank list of who we want to rank and um we are very fortunate to have you know, a couple hundred people apply to our program every year for two slots. And we choose to interview about 40 inib- individuals. And um, I tend to submit a rank list of about, um, uh, about uh, 15 people for each of those two slots. And again, it's a mutual match process. So they submit their rank list, we submit our rank list, and um, it it's, goes down the list. And you find out who you get, and they find out who they get once you have that uh, match, it's a binding contract. Um, you can't switch to a different program. It's actually pretty challenging if, if you're not happy with it. And then it becomes someone that you're gonna spend thousands of hours training over the next couple of years and they leave with your name and uh, they, they leave with your name and and, and everyone is uh, usually pretty happy afterward, but it's it's a very tight relationship that comes out of a pretty complex um, system of, of matching. And um, certainly, it has been the same way for decade upon decade. Um, despite the fact that recent changes have included obviously making the application electronic um, and of course the Zoom interviews during the pandemic. But beyond that, the entire process has been the same way for decades and decades. And I think that's where we potentially see some challenges.
0: That makes complete sense. Uh, there are some things that in the financial services industry, of course, we don't have a matching process. And we certainly never think that we're married to each other and we don't have each other's name after we, we don't have to stick together very much <laughs> after that initial selection and agreement together. Um, but I noticed some things that are very similar. There are a couple of things that are very standardized that we don't have so much in financial services. For example, the, the process of answering questions and getting answers that's more standardized and sort of objective than some of the things that we experience in recruitment and financial services. But there are a lot of things that can be very subjective. I'd like to drill down and just kind of highlight a part that I think is very similar, and that is the process of deciding that a candidate is the right fit for you. Um, And I think that's the area that really stood out to me where you and your team have made some significant strides forward, I think, um, just by adding some more um, objectivity to the process and shared principles or, or areas where you are sharing what you're seeking in terms of qualifications being on the same page about that, and then being disciplined. So first, maybe you can tell me how you first became involved in the recruitment process, you know, for your program. And then secondly, what are some of the things that you and your team have put together that have aided you in the most objective process you could find?
1: Um, I'm happy to chat about that. So from um, my perspective, I also wear the hat of the program director for our training program here. So there are about 20 of us cardiac and thoracic surgeons that um, train the individuals who come here. And um, I am ultimately in charge of the education of those trainees while everyone participates. I'm in charge of the rotation schedule, making sure that we have, um, you know, appropriate didactics and simulation and that they do all the things they need to do for us to be able to have them sit for the boards. And, um, so in that role, I, I am really responsible for reading every, every application we get, deciding who is going to come here to interview. And truly the rank list is mine to submit. But I fully recognize that because we are really married to these individuals when they come, that I want everyone as the group to be to be comfortable with whomever we match, because ultimately, um, it's not good for anybody if it's just my personal favorite. And so um, it really does need to be team buy in. And I think that team buy-in is an important aspect for every element of, of, the, of the process. I will say that before I had this role as the program director, um, I was really already deeply committed to this cause. And sometimes it was challenging to be what felt like the lone voice in the room during um, these discussions, especially when I think there are a lot of very, uh, very deeply seated blind spots and people don't recognize their implicit biases and that's a huge challenge. Um, and even if I couldn't always uh, control what was happening with me locally and with um, any group in which I participated, I will say that I've been long passionate about trying to provide sponsorship opportunities and write letters of recommendation to support um, individuals whom I uh, might have known, you know, elsewhere, or even from around the country. And I have mentored a lot of individuals, trainees, really from all over the world who've asked for support, um, even if they're folks I may have never even met in person, but I've found ways to work on research with them, to get them engaged, to give them opportunities, and then to really vouch for them because not everyone even has those opportunities to have someone sponsor them or put their name forward or write them those letters of recommendation. But in my current role as the program director, yes, I do have control over who we say we wanna match, but again, I'm so grateful for my many partners who are really key you know, stakeholders and very important um, educators for all these trainees. And so having their buy-in for, for who we match is incredibly important. So I would say that was the very first step. And um, these things take time. And so I don't think it's something that you introduce you know, the day before you're going to interview everybody. In fact, um, a few years ago when it was really important to me that we acknowledge that we really have continued to do it the same way and match the same people every time. Um, and when I say the same people, I mean people who are demographically very the same, very much the same. We are very fortunate in that we get outstanding candidates who are bright, talented, have phenomenal work ethic, and bring a, a lot of energy to to what we do. But unfortunately, historically, we have not done well at um, representing the diversity of the patients whom we serve. And that's really what we need to do. And so getting buy-in from the beginning and again, well in advance and saying, this is something that's important to us and we're going to be implementing changes over the coming months to years, I think was the first step. And um, I I will say that um, I took some time to review the process that we had. And I realized that Number one, there was not really uniformity in the way that the the interviews were being conducted and that there was plenty of room for bias in that process. The score sheets that we were using, I felt like had reasonable questions. However, um, they didn't, to me, include the breadth of positive traits that we might want to include. And by including a very narrow number of traits, of course, no one wants to fill out a long form. By only having three or four traits you're filling out, um, someone who may have other strengths that may not be characterized in those areas might be not getting the opportunity they deserve. So one of the very first things that I did, aside from a priori, making it clear that, you know, this is an opportunity for intentional choices to promote our diversity and talking about it well in advance. um, One of the very first things I did was I looked for traits that I thought made a good team member and made a good trainee and I was very careful about the language and the word choices. Um, I'm really into grammar and linguistics, and I I tried very hard to look at synonyms to ensure that the word choices had no inherent bias in them, whether they're racial or ethnic or any other way. And I think there's so many places for, for bias, even when we talk about the traits that we're seeking, number one, related to the words themselves, but also certain traits that some people have an opportunity to develop while others don't. And, and trying to group together traits that need to be together, not always um, looking at leadership of a team as separate from being a great participant in a team, um, because some people have not had those opportunities in that way. And And so what I did was I created a survey that I sent to all of my partners and said, here are 20 traits that could theoretically be really good in our trainees. Let's rank them. And you tell me what is important to you so that I can make sure that our new score sheet and our new rank list puts emphasis, and our scoring system puts emphasis on the traits that we as a group care about. Um, and uh, that really was a great way to get buy-in because anytime a question arose later, it was very easy to say objectively, this person had an outstanding score in the traits that you all, we all said were important to us. But I think being very particular about the way that you choose those traits and, um, and and the language but also including things that are that are sometimes overlooked you know like how does this person handle feedback how what's this person's honesty and integrity um what is their grit you know how have they risen to the occasion and not always focusing on um how many opportunities were they given for selected research fellowships in the past and i think that's where we run into trouble um and so i was actually very pleased and really delighted with the traits that that my partners said were were most important to them. And we came up with, I came up with five domains from the answers that they provided. And so um, the five domains, if it's okay with with you for me to share them with you, um, the first domain was in the area of resilience, drive, grit, and work ethic. And I chose to group those together because I, I think that historically we might've just thought of work ethic. How many lines do they have on their CV? How many letter, how many publications have they written? But when you put in there resilience, drive, grit, and work ethic, which kind of do all fit together, um, that enabled us to uh, have standardized questions where they can talk about a time in which they failed and how they dealt with that setback or to talk about a time where they had an obstacle in in their way and and that they wanted to achieve or attain and how they approached that challenge and really can help us learn how they would function on the job. And it's not necessarily just talking about opportunities that they've had in the past. That was the first domain. The second domain was in the area of, of teamwork and um, really giving them an opportunity to ask questions about, um, tell us about a time when you're part of a team that failed and why you think the team was unsuccessful. Or tell us about a time when a lack of teamwork hindered you in achieving a a project or goal. And we give the people opportunities to answer this, not just when you're working in a famous research medical lab, what was your result, what about when you were you know, coaching that soccer team in, you know, in, in the country in which you were born? What about that time when your family had this financial challenge and how you got them through it? There, there are lots of different opportunities for people to talk about their grit. The third domain was an area of integrity um, and it gives us an opportunity to ask questions about honesty, integrity, and ethically sound decision-making. One of my favorite questions of asking in this realm is, uh, tell us about a time when you thought honesty wasn't the best policy. And it's amazing the types of answers you get from people, and it really teaches you a lot about them. Mm-hmm. Um, fourth domain is in the area of leadership. But again, not, not just saying when was the last time you were the head of this committee or the head of that committee, but you know, tell us about a time when you were leading individuals and there was a conflict between them and how you handled it. And it can be when you were you know, the shift supervisor at the pizza place. It doesn't matter. It, it teaches us about the way people interact in, in these types of situations. And the last domain that we look at is humility, um, which you know, addresses issues of self-awareness, commitment to improvement and handling feedback. And, um, you know, I think this is also teaches a lot about people. Tell us about a time when you received feedback that wasn't positive and how you dealt with that. And ultimately, sometimes the people who really haven't always had as many uh, opportunities in the past don't always do as well on some of these. Uh, the ones who have had a lot of opportunities in the past don't always do as well on some of these questions. It's, it's surprising you learn a lot about each other. But the most important thing is that these different domains were really important to my partners as well. And I think it surprised everyone where we ranked them. No one had ever bothered to say, um, how important is it to you, the area of humility? How important is it to think about integrity? We were just looking at a very small, narrow subset of the things that were important to us without realizing the blind spot that there were so many other things that we did care about that we weren't even asking about. Um, I would also say that because so many people tend to be married to historical processes, I um, I said, We're going to add these additional elements to our score sheet, along to along with the other things we traditionally include um, standardized exam scores, um, which you know we can minimize the weight of the standardized exam scores. But ultimately, for us, the greatest predictor of someone passing their exam after they leave us is their past performance on an exam. So it's not a make it or break it, but we also we do need our graduates to pass exams going forward. Um, But putting weight into these other areas that we may not have always included in the past. I mean, we had categories like professionalism, how well are they dressed, you know, is their tie tight, you know, these are not things that necessarily are fair. Um, And so talking about humility and resilience is a totally different domain. In addition to having those elements on the score sheet, it was also important to me to try to create some standardization of the interview process. And that's a challenge because if you can imagine in our field, the types of questions people ask can be highly variable. I've been asking questions about response to these situational experiences um, or behaviorally rooted questions for years, but I am aware of people in my specialty who will ask questions where they'll say, Tell me the steps of an aortic root replacement, you know, or um, Tell me about the biggest medical complication you ever made. And, you know, I actually will tell you, I I grew up figure skating. um, And one of the questions I was asked at one of these interviews, I'm not kidding was um why is I slippery, which has absolutely nothing to do with your job as, as a surgeon and i I don't think it was that they were curious as to whether I still recalled some of the physics that I had learned at earlier stages of my life, but rather, you know, how do you respond to questions under pressure, which I understand kind of the goal, but is that really a determinant of a technically sound surgeon with good bedside manner? Probably not. So the goal is really to try to create some standardization and basically everyone was amenable to the idea that I suggested, which was here are sample questions that you can use from these different domains. Your room is assigned to domain two or domain three. Please ask two questions from the standardized set and do whatever you want with the rest of the time. And they still do use the rest of the time to ask, tell me about this paper that's on your CV or tell me how you do the conduct of this operation. But um, at least we know that some of it is rooted in in these domains that we said were, were important to us. So that's the first half of the battle. Of course comes the the second part, which is after we have all the scores, then the discussion and the negotiation and the creation of the list. But that was kind of where we got things started. That is
0: extremely helpful. Um, When you told me about this over lunch, I thought, why don't I have my notepad? And here I am again talking to you without my notepad because it's such a thrilling conversation. I, As you've been talking, I thought, I wish I worked for her. I wish I worked with her. I wish she could show me how to do this in my own workplace. Um, I, I, all of these things are so transferable. I actually went through a process involving uh, a team's look at succession. And we had a similar result where it turned out that all the things we had on paper said we wanted, what there weren't enough. And in fact, when we sat down and thought about some other domains, those things were the things that really mattered to us when it came to what we saw in success in others. So then the the tricky part was, once we agreed on domains like the ones you've described, how do you then put those into practice so that you're actually making selections that come back to those, those newer domains Um, Did you find that you got traction and that there was discipline around using those and how did it affect your
1: outcomes? Yeah, great question. So I didn't really have any challenges implementing the parts we just talked about just because I felt like I got good buy-in going into it. I've had um, now a few opportunities. We've had a couple cycles where we've used these tools. And um, one of the strategies that I also tried to implement, was to say, you know what, we have all these people with very close scores. And we generally do a little bit of moving around when people are clustered together. And sometimes it's arbitrary, you know, that for the reasons why we might move people around when they're clustered close together. And I I did make the point that this is an opportunity to be deliberate about diversity, not only in terms of diversity of, of, you know, someone's racial, ethnic, gender, but background, but also diversity of, where did they do their undergraduate training? You know, we don't, where, where did they learn their general surgery skills? How can we, what's their area of research interest? Ways to have diversity of experience. Um, and that's where you do see some challenges with implicit bias. Um, and, and it's unfortunate because you, you, know, you can, the question could be raised, well, I understand we want diversity, but why, why are we moving that person above that person? Because is this a meritocracy or is it about diversity? when they've never seen the actual numbers, when the numbers are blinded, there's an assumption there about where that person was in the numbers. So, you know, I think being very transparent is the one lesson that I've learned be as transparent as possible about everything. And um, I honestly would strongly recommend implicit association testing. And so that is um, a requirement um, for, I know hiring faculty members and executive leadership at our institution at many hospitals, but it isn't a requirement for those who interview and rank trainees we needed at every level. And I think not only just participating in the implicit association test, but also having uh, a development session workshops on it. And so we did do that after the first year, I um, arranged through our Office of um, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, uh, a a workshop for all of our faculty, which was great. Everyone's participatory, everyone loved it. And um, these are blind spots. These are people who want to do the right thing and have been heard and exposed to and read Different things for decades upon decades, sometimes six or seven decades, and it's it's time for people to to hear hear different things. And sometimes people don't use the best language to describe um, what are good intentions. And I've also learned that I have to be flexible, and I can't hold it against people when they mean the right thing, but it doesn't come out quite right. You know, I, I take the whims for what they are. Um, but I would say we've been very successful in. I would say. I think are our our best recruits the last couple of years, because not only are they as bright, as talented, as accomplished as the outstanding people that we've had in the past, they also are dramatically improving our our ability to um, provide a diverse face of CT surgery. And that's important to me that the face of CT surgery represents the patients whom we serve. And so um, after um, many years of training individuals who really were demographically very similar. I'm absolutely thrilled that the outstanding talented um, women whom we have recruited and uh, signed through the match to come the next couple of years also include some um, racial and ethnic diversity as well. And so um, that's just the start. That's the only, the only challenge is that um, we've got these great people coming in. That's not enough. Um, my greatest fear is that if we only get people's foot in the door, that if we don't do the right sponsorship that help people advance their careers at the same rate and give them the same number of opportunities, that attrition and um, you know work-life imbalance and uh, really burnout are going to be much faster. And um, I have been very fortunate to have some great sponsors and mentors throughout my professional development, but I have absolutely encountered challenges um, that I know have not been the same that my male counterparts have have experienced and I, I just want it to be better for the people who come come after me so um, i think our, our work does not stop the moment people get their foot in the door
0: that is such an important point um i want to go back to what you said about transparency for just a second that is such a key point and you'll be probably not surprised to learn that in the financial services industry, we've got people writing on exactly this topic. Uh, Professor Chris Brummer at Georgetown actually has a a very interesting uh, piece where he points out this exactly, this exact point for um, the financial services industry that there are very few black financial regulators. um, And he specifically points out the importance of transparency uh, to, to note that the appointment process remains sort of shrouded in um, a a bit of secrecy and the transparency that's needed for a fact-driven dialogue uh, is so important. And it sounds like your results bear that out. The the added transparency, the the sort of clarity and shared purpose and process, the buy-in that you got amongst your team to uh, agree to what really mattered to you seems um, so critical. And you've also been seeing great results, and yet you're not resting on your laurels. And I congratulate you for that, too. I think so many times we will say we've got our numbers up, so we're done, right? You know, <laughs> And the, the problem is um, getting numbers up doesn't solve it for the future. You have to look at the long-term plan. And so we also have noted in the financial services industry the same sorts of issues, the need for sponsorship, the need for... Um, the career to progress in a way that also is consistent with those of uh, people's um, non-minority peers, people who have been heavily represented in these fields, um, have had support as well. That we have to make an intentional effort to provide to people whose demographics make them newer to the, to the fields that they're entering. So, uh, I think it's just a really fantastic uh, piece of work that you're doing and you're making quite the difference um, in your world. I think this shows us that a lot can be done. I mean, you're one person, one team, one field. And if all of us emulate the themes that you've raised and some of the steps you've taken, then imagine what we could do in the world.
1: Absolutely. I'm so grateful to be able to chat with you about it. And honestly, I think as we reflect on the similarities between our workplace experiences, I think this is just kind of the, the the tip of the iceberg of the ways that we can actually learn from from different fields, and I'm trying all the time to learn about leadership development and other skills that we could transfer from uh, other 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 fields. I know there's a lot we can learn from the business world that's applicable in in medicine, and uh, probably vice versa. So certainly, I hope this is just the beginning of, of a lot of um, shared transferable experiences that we can we can do uh, we can take upon to really uh, improve. The, the workplaces for everybody in a wide breadth of, of careers.
0: Well, I certainly think you've highlighted that for us and the a lot of what you have seen in terms of what can happen just accidentally. We're all trying to do the right thing. How we really can turn the corner gives me a lot to go back a lot of homework. And I think those listening will share that, that hopefully people have had their notepads out. I'm gonna to listen to the recording to get my notepad out because I think that we can do so many similar things in financial services. Because at the end of the day, we are talking about selecting people to carry the torch in a profession. And we need both technical skills and many, many other attributes that will make them successful. And we have um, an obligation to those that we recruit, to continue to partner with them as they build their career. McKinsey points to a broken rung where women in finance struggle to get the all important first promotion that ultimately builds their careers. And you've pointed to similarities in your field and how you've addressed them. So I hope that we all take our lessons here and do what we can to emulate what Dr. Antonoff has shared here. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate learning from you in many ways today and uh, look forward to keeping in touch and learning more together.
1: Sounds great, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal, or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, Neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual, or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties, or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast content. Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale, or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2022 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.